I'm Hannah. I'm Sheena. And I'm Lori. And this is Cemetery Row. Howdy doody, folks. Sorry for the late episode. I needed a mental health day or I was going to burn my apartment down. So I appreciate (laughs) everybody's uh, patience. Hey, we got you, the best of us. Yes. Yes. Yeah, for sure. And you almost uh, started out this episode by screaming, what is in your mouth? (laughs) Your dog, which just brings me great joy. Oh, Hank the Tank. Hank the Tank. Um, He is officially 18 weeks old. Um, and is an absolute hell beast monster. Um, I am <laughs> promised that he will eventually be a good boy. Right now, he is a demon I have summoned from the depths of hell. As yeah, my boss well. put it, you did this to yourself. And I was yes. like, you know what? You're right. I did do this to myself. All right. So, so what are we doing this week, Sheena? This week, we are covering medical miracles. Yes. And I kind of have a general idea of what everyone's doing. And I am most excited Probably no offense, Lori, for Hannah's because <laughs> okay. I know this story and it is it is a classic Hannah tale. It and is. I know nothing about this. I'm <laughs> I'm so be, excited! Oh my god, it was so much fun. So I'm going to start us off uh, mostly because mine's the oldest, and just in case my hell beast decides to break bad again. <laughs> yes. So, and trigger warning: it gets gory in places. So. Hold on to your tips. It wouldn't be a Hannah story if it didn't. I mean, yep. who are we talking about here? <laughs> Picture it. September 13th, 1848. A railroad construction foreman named Phineas Gage was helping blow out some rocks, which is not a, a entendre of any form. That was oh, it's legitimately. Not any, <laughs> it's not a euphemism for No, else. he was. I, though I'm going to make it a euphemism for something. <laughs> Uh, in Cavendish, Vermont, Gage was good at his job and well-liked by his co-workers. He was a foreman. That's not an easy job to get. And the, pro- the process of blowing up rocks in those days sounds horrific, much like everything before at least 1975. We were not civilized <laughs> until at least the 70s. Everything was horrors until then. So what would happen was workers would bore a hole in the rock, fill it with gunpowder, Pack it down with a device called a tamping iron, which is basically a giant metal rod, and then place a fuse. And then, oh, kitty. And then I'm assuming run like hell. Phineas had his tamping rod specially made. It was three feet, seven inches. Phineas himself was five, six, which not a bad height for 1848. Mm -hmm. So it was about two thirds of his height and pointed at the end like a javelin. What could possibly go wrong? (laughs) Accounts vary on the specifics, it being 1848 and absolutely no one having a smartphone or even a Polaroid to document the moment. But at some point in that September afternoon, while he was tamping gunpowder into a hole in a mountain, the whole thing blew, sending his prized tamping iron directly through his fucking face. Okay, I know this one. I just didn't know the name of this guy. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I got you. I'm not that. Okay. I know, I know him. I just didn't know his name was Phineas Gage. Phineas Gage. It entered his left cheek, barreled through the top of his skull, and landed 25 feet away, stuck upright in the dirt. I hope somebody yelled, goal, but I doubt (laughs) they did. 
Apparently it was covered in blood and brain. (laughs) Again, the accounts vary, but the consensus is that Phineas never lost consciousness, though I'm sure he wishes he had. Phineas received medical treatment as fast as 1848 could get it to him. He cracked wise with the doctor who was staring directly into his exposed brain and what was described as a volcano of upturned bone. Gage greeted the doctor by angling his head toward him and deadpanning. Here's business enough for you. I love Phineas Gage. Yeah, that would be me. Yep. As somebody who is in the hospital with kidney infection and kidney stones, who is just cracking wise. I'm with you, Phineas. You got to laugh. <laughs> John Harlow, a self-described physician, as you could do in the 1840s, yep. tended to Phineas's wound by, get ready, guys, removing dried bits of blood and brain and skull from either side of the wound like a Chinese finger trap. <laughs> Yum. So glad I just ate some. <laughs> Oh, it gets better. Throughout the process, <laughs> Phidias would barf from the bits of brain and gore sliding out of the wound and down the back of his throat. Jesus Christ. But he remained unflappable, even joking that he'd be back to blasting rocks in two days. I love oh. Phineas. Yeah. Phineas is great. Within days, Phineas would start suffering from swelling, delusions, and fever, and it was determined the wound had developed a fungal infection. One could assume having a stranger from the woods raw dog a hole in your brain <laughs> could lead to some gnarly after effects. Nobody washed their hands. This man wiped his ass and then stuck his fingers in this man's brain. 100%. And we all know it. Yep. Whoa. Just no was antibacterial just, was just, soap. Like lesbian porn up in that brain. (laughs) And you know, he had just all kinds of shit under his fingernails. So it's no wonder that infection. Harlow lanced the inside of his nose. And while it was so touch and go that the cabinet maker would come and measure him for a coffin. Yeah, you get that water bowl, Hank. (laughs) Phineas battled through. He would remain blind in his left eye, which would be shown sewn shut to prevent protruding. <laughs> Phineas and his seemingly miraculous recovery aligned with what scientists of that period believed about the brain. That the frontal lobe didn't do all that much and wasn't all that important. <laughs> Though to definitively say that any part of the fucking brain isn't necessary, take some ironclad <laughs> balls. But knowing what we know now about traumatic brain injuries, especially the frontal lobe, no one in the modern day would be surprised to know that the Phineas that came back from the brink of death was a different fella altogether. The easygoing, hardworking Phineas was replaced by a cussing, crass, and disagreeable asshole. <laughs> Which, if I had a rod go through my head, I, I might also probably be a fucking asshole. But that's me. It was rumored he would work circus sideshows, charging a modest fee for people to look into the hole in his skull and see his brain pulsing beneath. It's a rumor, though. If he did, I would pay a quarter to see it. Not I would lie. too. I won't lie. <laughs> I would just, uh, you want to see the hole in my head? Yes, absolutely. I do. (laughs) God damn it. I do profane and capricious. He might've been, he worked in horse stables for a while as a livery driver and then quite spectacularly went to Chile during the height of its gold rush and drove a stagecoach. As you do. 
The intricacies of the rain work required for the type of coaches he drove have led some modern day scientists to wonder what exactly happened to Phineas's brain. So the type of coaches that he drove in um, Chile and while Lori is our horse girl, I don't know how much you know about stage coaches. Mm-hmm. Not a lot, <laughs> but apparently it's like multiple reins and you really have to, it's very intricate, like a rope yeah. system. And he was able to do it like flawlessly. Hmm. He um, did the Valparaiso to Santiago um, route for several years and people were just incredibly pleased with his stage coach work. And apparently it's complicated not something somebody with a traumatic brain injury you think would be able to pull off right he battled some more health problems and eventually went back to the states to work the farm with his family in california they had settled right outside of san francisco he suffered a bout of seizures in 1849 and died on may 21st at the age of 36 almost a dozen years after taking a tamping iron through the skull that's amazing. Yeah. By the way, he was buried with his tamping iron. No, he was not. Yes, he was. <laughs> oh my god. That's it my new favorite part of Stayed with story. him throughout his from the time of the accident on. The tamping iron wow. stayed with it. He would pose for photos with it. Love it. Love it. Awesome. He would later be exhumed, and his skull and the tamping iron reside at the Warren Anatomical Museum at Harvard University. Oh, God. Oh my God. Yes, indeed. So, yeah. Hank loves that fact. Hank loves it. Hank is barking at one of the cats. Go lay down. So, yeah. Phineas Gage. The dollop has an extremely good uh, episode on him. Um, which is awesome. It's one of the ones that I let my nephews listen to because they got a <laughs> kick out of it. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, how much we don't know about the brain. Yeah. And like, I mean, we know now about the frontal lobe and its um, various shenanigans. Um, but yeah, he just an iron to the fucking skull, man. Yeah. That's and wild. then just have somebody in there just. I know. No, no, no. Blend your gray matter. Ooh. No. Yeah. No. no. I mean, <laughs> that's that's definitely a medical miracle right there. And he wasn't a bad looking dude either. He was very yeah. handsome. He was very handsome. He had that pretty blue eye. Yes. There is yeah, just the one. The one. Just the one. <laughs> but there are some very good daguerreotypes of him mm-hmm. where he's posing with his tamping iron, mm-hmm. and you're just like. Right through the head, huh? Right through the head. Right, it's right like through the skull. Something out of Final Destination. I know. And it's you, just bananas. I wouldn't think anyone in 2022 would survive that, much less no. 1840. 1848, right. Yeah. And that's some of the stuff I was reading was like, they can't really use models to determine, you know, I mean, because they can look at his skull and kind of get mm. an idea of like, okay, there's where the shit went. But and I didn't realize this, but people's brain, you know, we have our overall, you know, layout, but everybody's yeah. brain is built just a tiny bit differently. Mm-hmm. And they said that those millimeters matter. So hmm. like, you know, one millimeter to the left for me is different than one millimeter to the left for somebody else. Mm-hmm. Right. So they could have a completely different set of outcomes due to injuries in that area and there's no good way you know we do know that certain areas of the brain controls we and now we know that the frontal lobe is basically our personality and our you know sense of right and wrong which is 
you know, why every decision you make before you're 25 is a dumb one. Um, You're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) But we know that now. And so the scientists at the time were like, oh, the frontal lobe must not be important because you could take an injury to it and be okay. I was like, no, it's important. It's what makes you not be a serial killer. Yeah. Or Phineas Gage, you know, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. All right. Good job, Hannah. Yeah. No, y'all were talking so much about it. And I'm like, I have no idea what this story's about. And then as soon as you started talking about like the railroad, and right. I, like, oh, I think I, and then bam. Yes. That I, hey. used to, I've seen it on Facebook. I just had no idea the, the dude's name. Bam. You know? Same thing happened to Phineas. Yes. <laughs> he also exactly. had a big realization with it. Started just- with a bam. All of a sudden, fam, rod through the face and then you got a country doctor finger in your brain. Yeah. (laughs) He's lucky he made it as long as he did. Yes. Um, So now I will go and um, this one's not going to be as fun as good old Phineas. At least a few things can be. Well, just because we're going to hop on the rage train a little bit toward the end of this. Um, Yeah. But I want to start off uh, because this is a very uh, personal story to me. And this story is actually what led me to pitch this to you ladies because uh, there was an anniversary posted on Facebook. And I was like, I want to learn more about this. So before I get into the people at the center of the story, I'm going to tell you my personal experience and how it relates to this. So in the fall of 2009, I was driving home from work and all of a sudden I couldn't see road signs. It mm-hmm. just like came out of nowhere. So, you know, I was a paid intern, so I didn't have health insurance. Uh, so my parents were like, we'll take you to the eye doctor. I was prescribed glasses, went about my day, but I soon began experiencing some other strange symptoms, extreme thirst and hunger. Y'all, I could just devour a 16 ounce steak, baked potato and broccoli and still have room for an entire loaf of bread. (laughs) Um, the constant need to pee and extremely rapid weight loss, which was great for me as somebody that has always been overweight, but not so great when people ask me, Oh man, how have you lost so much weight? Cause I was eating myself, my parents out of house and home. Uh, and I also would throw up at random times, uh, no real inclination as to what was causing it. I had no other stomach virus symptoms. I just occasionally would wake up and puke, um, and probably TMI, but I also developed pretty frequent yeast infections. I'll get to that in a second. So again, I was 24 years old, first job out of college working as a paid intern because you youngins may not remember, but back in 2008, there was a little recession and housing crisis and there were no jobs. Uh, So I was lucky to get anything. Oh yeah. No, the 2008 crash, um, Mm -hmm. gather round children, fucked us all real good. Yeah, it did. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Those of us who just graduated college and all. Yeah. Yeah. It you know, I didn't have insurance, so there wasn't a whole lot I could do. I just continued to waste away before everybody's very eyes until my mom finally said, that's enough. We're getting you some kind of insurance. It was a high deductible, very expensive plan, but we needed to figure out what was wrong. Didn't take long for the doctor to determine what it was. I was a type one diabetic, which is more commonly known as juvenile diabetes, which 
for those of you that don't know, typically happens when you're a kid, you develop it. It is not something that is my lifestyle didn't lead me to become a diabetic as with type two diabetes, um, governor in Florida, who doesn't know their ass from the hole in the ground or we'll, we'll get into that one. Uh, so the sugar that was built up in my body that, you know, cause my pancreas basically decided, yeah, I don't want to work anymore. Uh, the sugar was coming out anywhere it could. So it was coming out in my eyes, which was changing my vision. It was coming out my pee, which is why I was getting yeast infections and the random bouts of puking were because my sugar was getting too high. Um, so a quick tutorial on what happens when you be, are a type one diabetic. Most of us are dependent on two types of insulin, a fast acting insulin and a slow acting insulin. The fast acting insulin is what you take when you eat. So you predetermine, you have a predetermined carb to insulin ratio. Most diabetics have one. Mine's one, one unit of insulin to four carbs. Um, so if I eat something with about 20 carbs, I'll inject about four units of uh, the fast acting insulin. And that keeps my sugar from going up too high right after I eat. That slow release insulin is typically taken at night before bed, and it helps keep your blood sugar levels throughout the day. So in between the times when you are eating and taking that fast acting. Um, and you, your goal is usually, I want to take the same amount of fast acting and slow acting insulin. So at one point I was taking 40 units of the slow acting insulin before bed. And then throughout the day, I took about 40 units of the fast acting insulin. Science has come so, so, so far. Uh, so many types, of type ones like myself, and we have a listener who is also a type one diabetic, uh, Juanita. Hi there. Um, use an insulin pump and a constant glucose monitor. And it, my dad it, is type one. I just realized that. Really? Yeah. And I he got it. He um he was really late too. He didn't. They diagnosed him in uh, his late thirties. Well, so my father-in-law was the same. He was diagnosed at 30 and they said stress brought his on. They have no idea. Yeah. They have no idea what caused mine. Um, I have no family history at all. So yeah, neither does he, he just suddenly got super, super sick. Mm -hmm. And like, he's been, um, there was one time when I still lived in Mississippi, my mom calls me and she's like, dad's in the ICU. And I was like, I'm sorry, what? And his blood sugar was like 300 something. They were like, you should be in a coma. He's like, I just feel kind of shitty. You you feel like trash and it it, it sucks. But uh, science has come so far. So the the insulin pump, you wear it and you only have to use one type of insulin. And then you wear a monitor that basically every five minutes updates your pump with what your blood sugar is. And it will alert you if your blood sugar is shooting up really fast or if it's dropping really fast. And that has saved my ass so many times because I will wake up in the middle of the night with a low blood sugar. And it's because my sensor has gone off saying, Hey bitch, wake up. You need to drink some orange juice. Um, because an overdose of insulin is going to kill you a lot faster than not having insulin. Uh, Hollywood would have you believe otherwise. I'm looking at you, Conair. Um, so what did Shelby and Stood Magnolias have? Because she, she, she said, she drink was, your juice. I was like, yeah, drink your she juice, was, Shelby. Yeah, she was, she was a type one. Okay. Um, and I won't get into that because I have very strong feelings about that. I know that it's based on a real person. So, but if I don't take insulin, I could live for maybe a couple of months or maybe even a couple of years if I control my diet 
but if I take too much insulin and don't treat it, I'm going to die because the insulin is what brings your blood sugar down. It's not something you take when you're having a, a sugar crash. The number of times I've had somebody tell me, oh, do I need to give you insulin when I really need a juice? Uh, completely ridiculous. That is not the way it works. Um, so anyway, science has saved my life. You do not have to be a child to get juvenile diabetes. And now we're going to get into the story about the miraculous discovery of insulin and uh, trigger warning. It's not, it's, it's not done anymore, but a lot of this early research was done with dogs. So trigger warning, there are some studies that I talk about that involved uh, testing on dogs. Don't listen to them, Hank. Just yes. Don't, you okay. don't, don't hear this part. Yes. So in 1889, two German researchers, Oskar Minkowski and Joseph von Mehring, discovered that when the pancreas gland was removed from dogs, they developed symptoms of diabetes and died pretty quickly. Um, and while I do have major issues with using dogs for this, res- this research, <laughs> yeah. in doing so, they were able to figure out that, okay, whatever is causing these kids and these young people to waste away and die It has something to do with the pancreas. Something's going on there. So they began experimenting. They fed diabetic patients pancreas. That didn't do anything. And I am so glad I was not a diabetic patient in 1889. Uh, Then in 1910, Sir Edward Albert Sharpay Schaefer deduced that there was one specific chemical missing from the pancreas of people with diabetes, a chemical he named insulin after the Latin word meaning island. Now there are people, there are multiple scientists. I mean, I'm talking about, I think seven today that uh, are credited with discovering insulin as treatment for type one diabetes, because at the time of my story, research was being done everywhere. Um, there's a, a lot of people credit this Romanian physiologist, Nicolae Polescu, uh, with first successfully injecting a diabetic dog with insulin, but he was not the first to test the use of animal insulin in humans, and he was a, a notorious anti-Semite, so he can fuck right off. Yep. He does not get credit for this. So while he was doing whatever the fuck he was doing in Romania, researchers at the University of Toronto were moving very quickly on their own research. And so this is where we get into all the researchers. So Dr. Frederick Banting was a surgeon who earned his degree in medicine from the University of Toronto in 1916 before serving in World War I. After the war, while establishing his medical practice, he began teaching part-time in the physiology department at Western University in Ontario. And it was while he was working on a lesson plan for his students about the pancreas that he took an interest in diabetes research. So his background was not diabetes. He just wanted to figure out how to communicate what the pancreas is and what it does to his students. He decided, hey, I want to do more research into this. So he went to meet Dr. John McLeod at the University of Toronto for assistance because this guy was, he was it on a stick when it comes to research. He was going to be able to help him do his studies correctly. Um, now they had some of the best labs in the country at the university. McLeod was a well-known physiologist, but he was skeptical about Banting's theories. 
So, but he he was like, okay, I'll let you do what you're going to do. So he assigned him a medical student named Charles Best to help with the research. And he would go on vacation and he was just kind of a background character. So Banting and Best were successfully able to treat a diabetic dog with an, with an extract of, uh, blah, 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 an extract <laughs> of degenerated pancreas of another dog and the dog's blood sugar dropped. And they were able to keep the diabetic dog alive for 70 days. And the dog only died after they ran out of the extract. So Hmm. this was a huge, huge discovery. They were excited about it, but McLeod was still skeptical. And he's like, look, we need to better this. You need this biochemist, James Colip. We need to refine this process before we move on to human testing. And this was all in 1921. And everything moves very, very quickly in the story. Hmm. Um, you know, as you'll see. So the, the three who, well, the four men didn't really get along. Colip and uh, McLeod were kind of buddy, buddy. And then Best and um, Banting were buddies. So there was a lot of infighting going on, you know, researcher nonsense, but they soon learned that they could utilize the chilled pancreases of cows from nearby slaughterhouses to extract insulin. So no more studying on dogs they were doing, they were taking the pancreases of cows that had been slaughtered for food. So that, that bright side to it is they stopped doing the studies on dogs. Is there anything cows can't do? Right. Cows are amazing. (laughs) Uh, Colip was instrumental in refining this process. And by 1922, so January of 1922, they felt it was safe enough to begin human trials. Hmm. So this is like less than a year of research and they're like, we got to try it. But honestly, I would be desperate for anything if I had a type one diabetic child, because, and just another little backstory, when I finally was able to see an endocrinologist, uh, his, what he told me just blew my mind before insulin, your, what they told you to do if you develop diabetes, oh, uh, starvation and alcohol. Oh my God. Yes. And as, as I talk about, some you're of the not patients, an heiress. Yes. Well, well, we'll get to some of these patients were able to sustain themselves for several years on a starvation diet, because that was the oh, only okay. way to keep yourself alive. Um, wow. I remember too hearing at one point because my grand, she yeah. was diabetic too. So they said back in the day, they used to test for it because your pee would be sweet, which is how oh, yeah. you get the yeasties. Yeah. And uh, they were like, yeah, they would just taste their pee and see if it's sweet. And I'm like, oh, like I told you anything (laughs) before 1975 was just, yeah, sugar, it it has to come out somewhere. And so, so yeah. Um, So, so again, the prognosis for someone with type one diabetes was death within weeks or a few months at most or starvation if you wanted yeah. to try to, to live long enough to for science to catch up with what was going on with you. Wow. So on January 11th, a pancreatic extract was given to Leonard Thompson, a 13-year-old boy who was near death from diabetes in a nearby hospital. Now, unfortunately, their first test was not successful. He suffered an allergic reaction. But Colip, who, and I'm going to tell y'all, I he was, he was fine. He was a very good looking young man. Uh, they, he refined that extract and they tried again on January 23rd and it was a success. Leonard's blood sugar dropped drastically. His other symptoms practically disappeared. 
And he went on to live 13 more years before he did die of pneumonia at age 26. So probably not related to his diabetes. I mean, diabetes basically puts you at risk for everything. Yeah. Right. But, you know. And people just be dying. Yeah. Before the 70. (laughs) Pretty much. Pneumonia has always been super deadly. I mean, even today it can be. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So he was buried at St. John's Norway Cemetery and Crematorium in Toronto. Um, And there are two Americans that have been credited with being the first ones treated with this insulin extract from Toronto. So I'm going to share a little bit about both of them just to show you that it goes beyond, you know, yeah, that kid lived until he was in his late 20s. Um, But for me, especially my whole thing with being diagnosed is I don't know anybody who's lived a long time being type one diabetic. I don't want to, you know, Mary Tyler Moore is pretty much the only, so, so these stories knowing as far back as this was that these people lived as long as they did really help, help my mental health when it comes to dealing with this, right. uh, this diagnosis. So Elizabeth Hughes Gossett was 11 years old when she was diagnosed with diabetes in 1918. The following year, she was put on a strict diet of 800 calories a day. Jeez. She went from weighing 75 pounds at her diagnosis to 45 pounds. Upon learning about the treatment of Leonard Thompson, her mother called and begged the doctor to take her as a private patient. He agreed and Elizabeth began receiving insulin in August of 1922 and was able to return home by Thanksgiving day. Oh, wow. A little more about Elizabeth. She graduated from Barnard College in 1929, married lawyer William T. Gossett, who went on to become president of the American Bar Association the following oh, year. Well, they had, fancy. yes, she, well, she was, she was a bit of a socialite, I think. Yeah. Uh, they had three kids. This was back wow. before, like, I was a very high risk. I had two very difficult diabetic pregnancies. Damn, yeah. the girl was doing it. Three pregnancies. Yeah. Wow. Uh, She was very active in civic affairs in the Detroit community. She was a member of the board of trustees for Barnard College, a member of the Detroit Urban League, and she founded the Supreme Court Historical Society in 1972. Wow, good for her. Yeah, she was pretty awesome. She died of a heart attack on April 21st, 1981 at age 75, and it was estimated Mm -hmm. that at the time of her death, she had received nearly 42,000 insulin injections over the course of 58 years. Wow. Um, And it was kind of sad. She didn't ever publicly want to talk about being diabetic. It wasn't mentioned in her obit. And and I get that, but it's like, it's who I am. You know, a lot of, you know, you need to feel pride that, you know, you're type one strong or whatever. But I I hate that she was embarrassed by it. And, but I understand completely where she would be coming from at the time. Yeah. Our other American is James D. Havens, who developed diabetes at age 14, somehow managed to survive to 22, and was given his first dose of insulin in 1922, weighing less than 74 pounds. Whoa. 22-year-old man, less than 74 pounds. How do you exist at that point? I mean, you you don't i mean you're like yeah. a living skeleton at that yeah, point yeah you're yeah. just flesh and some 
Right. Viscera. (laughs) This is actually kind of interesting because he's kind of connected to our our, our stories for next week. Uh, Havens went on to finish studying art at what is now known as the Rochester Institute of Technology and became a well-known printmaker and painter. Oh, awesome. His work can be found in the collections at the Library of Congress, the Metropolitan Museum, the Albright Knox Art Gallery, and others. In his personal life, he married Gladys Corwin on July 18th, 1927, and they had two children. He died from stomach cancer at his home in Fairport, New York, on November 30th, 1960, at the age of 60. Hmm. And I could not find any information about where he or Elizabeth Gossett were buried. Um, but yeah, it, to me, it's very interesting that these people died from natural causes not mm-hmm. complications from type 1 diabetes so yeah well and hope. that's the thing is like my grandmother she was a type 2 diabetic so uh-huh. hers was um but she started having heart problems when i was in high school um and the, they did the uh where they stick the balloon up there and right. the stint in well stints don't work on diabetics <laughs> because the sugar in your blood hardens your arteries yeah um which is you know why diabetics can have heart problems but i'm like you might want to have have mentioned that at some point before you just went in there and started sticking things in her arteries (laughs) maybe maybe do some blood work first right like we told you she was diabetic you've been giving her insulin every day she's been in the hospital so yeah so, this was where we figured out she was allergic to Benadryl too. So that was, fun. Oh, well, oh, wow. Yeah. I was like, great, great. Thanks guys. <laughs> the more, you know, so yeah. back to the researchers. So Banting and McLeod. So the two senior guys were awarded the 1923 Nobel prize in medicine, which was met with some controversy that is still around today. Many believe that Banting and his assistant, Charles Best, should have received sole credit, while others felt that McLeod's biochemist, James Colip, should also receive credit since it was him who fixed the dosage in the beginning so that yeah. it wouldn't cause a reaction. Um, I did read in an article that Best was ineligible for the award because he had he didn't receive his medical license until 1925, so the fact that he was a student possibly played a role in why he wasn't included in that nomination either way banting and mcleod did share part of their financial awards with best and colip so that was nice of them yeah banting developed an interest in aviation medicine and began working with the royal canadian air force in research pertaining to physical problems pilots developed while operating high altitude combat aircraft which has got to be just super fascinating in and of itself um during this is my favorite part y'all so during world war ii he studied the treatment of mustard gas burns even using the gas and testing antidotes on himself no yes no like banting bra yes (laughs) what a badass he's like look i don't want to test it on others i'm gonna do it to myself um sadly he was killed in a plane crash in February of 1941 while en route to England. Um, there's a whole, like the plane crashed, everybody died, but him and one other survivor, but he eventually, I don't think they were found right away. It was a couple of days and he died because of the elements 
the following day. So he survived the crash, but unfortunately um, did not survive to get help. And he was buried at Mount Pleasant Cemetery in Toronto. He has a very beautiful grave, uh, he and his wife. Charles Best is also credited with the discovery of the vitamin vitamin choline and was one of the first researchers to utilize anticoagulants for the treatment of blood clots. Oh, wow. Really happy about that right there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, He became the director of the Banting and Best Department of Research at the University of Toronto from 1941 to 1967. He did create some controversy after Banting's death. Because he got his friends and the research community to begin a crusade to erase McLeod and Colet from the record as helping to discover insulin treatment. And it wasn't until his death at age 79 that McLeod and Colet were re-remembered for their involvement in the oh, discovery wow. of insulin as a treatment. Uh, side note, the development of synthetic insulin, so insulin not derived from an animal, uh, happened that same year. So 1978, I think, was the year he died. Anyone um, who says women are more dramatic than men. <laughs> yeah. This, these are the kind of stories I like to pull out and say, no, no, men be bitches, too. Yes. Oh, yeah. They, they <laughs> even, petty. even educated, successful. Actually, the more educated and successful, the bitchier they are. Exactly. So, yeah, no, they got claws, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, Best is actually buried not far from uh, Banting at Mount Pleasant Cemetery. Mm. Okay. Two more people, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> so John McLeod left Canada for Scotland in 1928, where he became Regius Professor of Physiology at his alma mater, Aberdeen University. He died at age 58 on March 16th, 1958, and was buried in the local Aberdeen Cemetery. But his headstone does recognize that he is the co-discoverer of insulin. Nice. So, yes. Colip became the head of the Department of Biochemistry at the University of Alberta before he was recruited to McGill University in 1928, where he served as chair of the Department of Biochemistry. Um, He was dean of medicine for the University of Western Ontario. Um, He died at age 72 in 1965 and and again while he is overlooked a lot for the role he played in developing insulin he is credited with being a pioneer in endocrine research and the endocrine system the pancreas is a part of that so yeah but i would just like to end it on another little side note uh in my research i learned a little more about what it costs to make insulin so just you know what do y'all think it would cost? It costs on average to make a bottle of insulin. Any any guesses? I have no idea. I'm gonna say like five bucks. Hannah, you are right on the money. It costs between two and six dollars. I make fucking guessed too. <laughs> insulin. And what do the pharmaceutical companies want to charge us? Like $500. If you do not least. have health insurance, so I was on insulin before I got hired at my job and was able to get health insurance. My first month of one type of insulin was over $400. And that did not include all of the testing supplies, the needles, 
everything. There is no excuse for insulin, which has been around for a hundred years to cost so much because this is a drug that literally is keeping me alive Mm -hmm. and they want pharmaceutical companies want to charge you thousands of dollars just to live. It is just disgusting, complete and utter disgusting bullshit. Um, it's just, well, so and that's, yeah. and that's too, I mean, cause you have the medication, which is great. You know, the, the vial of insulin uh-huh. that has to be kept refrigerated and has to be kept under certain, you know, mm-hmm. and then I just knew from my grip, for, my dad is not insulin dependent. He takes the, the, the one that's not insulin, but it's still a shot. Yeah. I can't okay. remember what it's called. Yeah. Trulicity, I think. Those. Yeah. Yeah. So, and metformin, so he's not insulin dependent, but my grandmother was. And so, so not only do you have the insulin, which thankfully she had that great post office civil servant, you know, um, Mm -hmm. insurance, but there's the needles, there's the lancets for checking because back in her day, you had the thing where you poked your Mm -hmm. finger 20 times a day and her fingers were so callous that at the end she was having to like use the webs of her fingers to to get blood. Mm -hmm. Um, so those cost money, the alcohol wipes to make sure you're not yep. creating bloodborne infection wherever you go, the needles, you know, and yep. depending on what neighborhood you're in, it can be hard to get needles at the drugstore. Oh yeah. That's because so true. they might not be willing to give them to you or yep. she had to worry about people stealing them, yep. you know? And so she was lucky in that again, because she had really good union based mm-hmm. insurance from the post office a lot of that was pretty cheap you know or covered completely but you think about people who don't and so they're having to you know try to find fucking syringes in bulk off of goddamn amazon you know yeah. or whatever it's in like alcohol swabs and the lancets and all of these other things mm-hmm. And then even with the new technology where you just have that little sticker thing on you, that has to be replaced too. Yeah. And, and it's expensive. Co- yeah. It's expensive. Yeah. Even with expensive, even with insurance, all the, you know, the, the sensors that you can wear the pump, it is very, very expensive. And if, and I have insurance and it's still pretty expensive, but luckily we have the ability to pay for me to have this technology. And that is not the case with everyone. And as I said earlier, this sensor has saved my ass so many times and I'm a good diabetic. I take care of myself. I eat right. I monitor my sugars. Mm -hmm. So for the people that aren't able to eat a healthy diet because they can't afford to eat a healthy diet. And like with juvenile diabetics, mm -hmm. I mean, with kids with diabetes, kids do not have good medical compliance period because they're fucking kids. They don't want to stop playing because they know Mm -hmm. their sugar's dropping or they know, Hey, I really do feel like shit, but I want to do this, that, and the other. So it's like, even under the best of circumstances with anything affecting kids, you're going to have really shitty compliance because they're kids. And you got to hope those parents care enough. And unfortunately, there are a lot of parents out here who don't care. And there are parents that don't get a full night's sleep because they're checking their kids' blood sugar multiple times. Right. And, and then another with kids and I'm, you know, if I had to be type one diabetic, I'm glad it happened when I was an adult because, um, I have a friend who's, who's type one since seven. She has a sister who was type one at two and going through puberty 
was just a nightmare because your your sugar goes spikes up and down and and that already sucks yeah and i mean i know from my pregnancies that it was the last trimester was just an absolute nightmare on my blood Mm -hmm. sugar i cannot imagine being like 12 and 13 dealing with puberty and dealing with the ups and downs of having you know a life-threatening illness that no one knows anything about because hollywood has made it their mission to teach you everything that's not true about it and it's (laughs) it's frustrating at at least one time i'd like to see a movie where there's a type 1 diabetic that is not dying because they don't have their insulin right within 12 hours you know it just anyway i have gone on long enough (laughs) (laughs) i apologize this is you know know, it's it's, very important yes so sheena I'm excited to hear about yours. Okay. So my story probably is the least medical of the medical miracles. Um, <laughs> but to be fair, um, and, and no offense to doctors, nurses, <laughs> physical therapists, um, medical stuff freaks me out yeah. on a deep, deep level. Um, even though I have lived at doctor's office and physical therapist's office for the last couple of months with my body trying to fall apart on me. Um, but I, uh, medical stuff squeaks me out. So this is not so much a medical miracle as it is a miracle survival. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is kind of a miracle because I mean, or I mean, it's medical because it's survival, but either way, yeah. um, I've always loved this story. Um, and I first saw it on unsolved mysteries. So now I'm just going to tell you what I saw on unsolved mysteries Hell and yeah. read and read in some old newspapers too, <laughs> but picture it June 11th, 1994 highway 50 in El Dorado County, California. This is just outside of Sacramento. Um, it was about 3 AM and Deborah Hoyt and her husband were driving down the highway. Um, it's 3 AM. So they're sleepy. So they're singing songs to keep themselves awake. Why are they out at 3 AM? I don't know that that's not important. Okay. (laughs) Hey, they're living a more interesting life than I do because (laughs) they're they're out driving at 3 AM and I, I'm always asleep at 3 3 AM. Anyway, Deborah suddenly sees out of the corner of her eye what appears to be a naked white woman laying on the side of the road the woman was facing uh the road <gasps> you know this story, story. Yes, i knew carry you on. Know i have watched every unsolved mysteries. me too i okay. think i remember this one from the reruns yeah so the woman um that was laying near the road she was facing the road her knees were bent Um, And she had one arm under her head and another arm on her head. And the Hoyts were like, oh, oh my God, what? There's a naked woman laying on the side of the road. Oh my God. So they don't know, is this some kind of, you know, joke that's not really that funny? Um, Or was someone doing it to get someone to stop and then they'd like carjack them or attack them? You know, they didn't know. Mm -hmm. So they drove to the nearest phone booth, phone booth. um, (laughs) Children, please ask your your mommies and daddies what a phone booth is. (laughs) um they stopped at the nearest phone booth um to call the police and report what they saw the police arrived and they patrolled the area but they didn't find anything and deborah couldn't point them to an exact location because she wasn't sure it's 3 a.m it's dark she's like "I, i just how do you not see a naked woman on the side of the road right um but the deputies knew because they are obviously from the area they knew that area really well it's a dangerous stretch of the highway called bullion bend 
And the next day, a deputy named Richard Strasser decided to return to the scene and investigate in the daylight. Uh, He had heard that a young woman and her son had just been reported missing a couple of days earlier. So he wondered if what Deborah saw had something to do with the missing mother and child. And while he's out there examining the road, uh, he finds a child's black tennis shoe on the side of the road. Oh my God. And, oh God, don't, don't, don't cry, Lori. Don't cry, it's Lori. It's okay. It's okay. Um, and just beyond the shoe was this very, very steep 40-foot embankment. And at the bottom of that embankment, he found a totaled car. Oof. Oh, man. So let's return. Let's rewind five days to june 6 1994 23 year old christine scoobish and her three-year-old son nick were driving on highway 50 uh, from their home in garden valley just northeast of sacramento Uh, they were going to visit some friends in carson city nevada and then after that they were going to drive down to la habra i hope i'm saying that right probably not i'm not from california um where Christine was going to marry Nick's father. Um, that was her high school sweetheart. Um, she was a waitress and a college student. And like I said, she's 23, very young woman. She's got this three-year-old baby and, you know, they're off to start this new life together, which I think is very lovely. Mm-hmm. Um, she had packed the car full of clothing and other personal items as if they were planning to move down there and stay, but she didn't pack any food or water. So yeah, Christine, why would you, if you're just yeah. heading down to, yeah Carson City was only about two hours away so you know she probably Mm -hmm. I bet she was going to think you know from Carson City to La Habra I I, I did all the Google mapping on this was like an eight and a half hour drive so she probably would have gotten food for that trip but not necessarily for this one which well it even then you would have you know you stop at a gas station or you stop at a McDonald's or Yeah. yeah no big deal So Christine stopped for gas about 2 a.m. Monday morning, June 6th, and that was the last time anyone saw um, them alive. Uh, Her friends and family became concerned when they didn't arrive in Nevada, so her stepfather reported the pair missing. So going back to the wrecked car, uh, five days later, we're going back to the deputy Strasser and the wrecked car. The car did match the same one that Christine was driving but its roof had been torn off in the wreck and, but he was able to match the car to the one that Christine was driving. So this was the missing woman and her child Um, inside the wreckage. He found Christine's body. It was clear Mm. she was dead and probably died on impact. He went over to the passenger seat where he found three-year-old Nick who was naked turning blue and curled up in the fetal position. And Mm. he just assumed Nick was dead as well. But he called his name and checked for a pulse, and the boy sighed. Aww. And so Strasser was like, oh, my God, this baby's alive. So he called for an ambulance. The doctors examined Nick, and they determined he only had maybe an hour or so left to live. Bless um, his heart. Oh, my God. He had Ooh. been out there in the elements for five days by himself. Why was he naked? I think because it was so hot during the day and Uh, so cold at night oh that paradoxical undressing where you feel like you're hot but you're actually freezing yeah that's that's my wonder i really Mm -hmm. don't know and and nick doesn't know either um but police theorize that um 
She fell asleep at the wheel sometime after shopping for gas and that her car crashed into the ravine below. And because that embankment was so steep, the drivers on the highway couldn't see the car. So oh. they had no idea. They, they may have known that, you know, a mother and her baby were missing, but they had no idea that she was down there. Um, and they believe she was killed instantly. Um, mm. I think there was a huge tree or a big tree branch on her. Mm. And like I said, the roof had been torn off. Um, but three-year-old Nick, just a three-year-old oh baby, baby, survived five days of very, very hot temperatures. This is California in June. Mm. And then very cold nights, no food, no water, no one to help him. Um, he did climb up onto the road and that's why you have his shoe there, which that is amazing to me that no one he had the him. wherewithal to do that too. But mm -hmm. then he climbed back down. Um, he stayed in the car and talked to his mama. I don't, he's three. I don't think he understood that she's not, yeah, that she was dead. Mm -hmm. Um, doctor said he suffered from dehydration and hypothermia. Um, he also had scratches and blisters on his body from poison oak that he must have picked mm. up when he was climbing. Um, but I mean, he spent, like I said, five days with no food, no water. And I Googled how long you can live and you can only live about three days without water. So this Less is truly a miracle. Biscuits. Yeah. Oh, man. Truly a miracle. Um, as an adult, Nick recalled, I remember almost every night. I don't remember the days too much, but I remember the night we wrecked. I remember the car flipping. I remember hitting tree after tree after tree. And I remember when the roof of the car got ripped off. I remember seeing my mom. I remember getting out of the car. I remember climbing up that 40 foot embankment and sliding down on pine needles. Mm. I remember seeing lights. I remember every night, pretty much. I just don't remember the days at all. If anything, I feel like I was sleeping, but I don't remember the days at all. And he said later that he did recall seeing a woman standing near the road. And he thinks maybe that was his mom. Aww. Obviously, um, but she she likely died on impact mm -hmm. and what deborah hoyt saw the white naked woman on the mm -hmm. side of the road that couldn't have been christine either because she was fully clothed and she had her seatbelt on so mm -hmm. there's no way she was getting out of that car right so a lot of people think that was christine signaling what for she her had child to, to right. get her baby help mm -hmm. um and then christine's aunt also um mentioned a few curious incidents too she had dreams that christine and nick were in an accident long before the pair were even reported missing and she remembered the number 16 and the nearest mile marker to the accident scene was mile marker 16 Aww. so i think christine was doing her best to to get someone's attention mm -hmm. right and i mean if you see a naked woman on the side of the road that's yeah you're stopping you know? you're right yeah so then what I found really interesting was where Christine is buried. She is at uh, Forest Lawn Memorial Park in Cypress, California. Her monument reads beloved mother, daughter, sister, niece, and granddaughter. But what's really cool is there are a ton of fascinating people buried at the cemetery. Hmm. Um, if you've seen the show Angel, uh, Glenn Quinn, who starred as Doyle, he's buried there um eddie cochran who had hits in the 50s with songs mm -hmm. like summertime blues he's buried there um i think his the anniversary of his passing was like literally yesterday day before like mm -hmm. i just saw someone mention it uh sandy west of the runaways 
Um, there are also a lot of actors, a lot of major league baseball players. And Dolores Dolly Sapita, I hope I'm saying her last name right. Uh, she was a victim of the Hillside Strangler. Mm. So I saw this, as I said, on Unsolved Mysteries season nine. And when I looked it up today to rewatch, um, I've seen this story literally a thousand times i could practically quote it but i wanted to watch it one more time mm. before we recorded i can't find it on the streaming services i know i've got it on my ghost dvds from unsolved mysteries but mm. um my mama has those now and i don't have them <laughs> with me um so i can't find that streaming but i know it's out there um and also there was an episode of paranormal witness uh that nick appeared on to talk about what happened to him mm-hmm. Um, he's still alive, seems to be doing great. I don't know anything about him other than this. And I didn't want to, you know, stalk him on Facebook or, or whatever social <laughs> you media. You didn't want to you know. pull a Lori and, and find yeah, out how he like, went to college know, and how much yeah. he gets paid. Bless his heart. He, uh, you yeah. know, he survived this amazing thing. And I feel like he's like one of those famous yet not famous people because mm-hmm. before he could probably write, he was on Unsolved Mysteries. Yeah. Right. So it's like, you know, I didn't want to dig too deep because I'm sure he enjoys his privacy. But this has always been one of my favorite stories because that that baby shouldn't have survived no it. And somehow no he did. And I give all the credit to his mother. And of course, to the doctors who did help take yes. care of him. Yes. Um, I don't want to, you know, knock them. But at the same time, I mean, he, as I said, he was almost an hour from death and, and his mama made sure. Yeah. And that's the thing with like him describing the rollover and hitting trees because I was in a rollover car accident in 2011. And that was the one thing that I still it probably will be the last memory I have when, Mm -hmm. you know, my time comes to shuffle off the coil is, you know, yeah, realizing, okay, we're about to hit this median. This is going to fucking hurt. Yeah. And then we hit and then it's like oh we, we have not stopped moving why are yeah. why is the car still moving yeah and then finally and just like that whole this the disorientation because your brain is like well this isn't supposed to be happening right and so i can only imagine a three-year-old being like what the fuck yeah. this is the yeah. 90s so none of us were strapped in probably not i mean none I, of us, I, I mean was, if he was I in the passenger lie. seat he was not in a booster Um, Yeah. And, you know, I didn't start seriously wearing my seatbelt until a friend of mine died in a car wreck in high school when he was thrown from the vehicle and it killed him. So, and that was 1999. Yeah. I never wore a seatbelt before that. Yeah. And like, you didn't put toddlers in booster seats no. or in mm-hmm. car seats when we were I was kids. never in a booster or anything. Uh, the whole as that's soon as you could sit up, now is they so strapped wild. you in. You yeah, and you yeah. were responsible for sitting your ass down. And that, oh yeah, yeah, hundred yeah, percent. So I mean, I, and I mean, I'm not saying all that to say Christine was a bad mom or anything. I'm no, saying that was the culture was, back then. Yeah, she was an early '90s parent. That's yes, hundred percent. I mean, she was strapped in. I was I was like surprised and happy right. to see that she had wore a seatbelt because I. I was not i mean i was what 11 in 1994 i was not yeah. one. Oh, absolutely um, not but yeah so i just it's one of those things of i think she i hate that nick only got three years with her i think she would have been an absolutely incredible mother and clearly she still looks after him from beyond mm-hmm. i really oh, believe absolutely. that i mean yeah i know everyone wants to talk about ghosts real or not whatever i 
your loved ones stay looking after you. And I think right. Christine Scubish must have been a really amazing lady. So yeah, just wanted to give props to her and, and to, shout to out little to little Nick. Yeah. And shout out, you know, to the couple who, whatever they were doing yeah. at 3 a.m. Yeah. I love them for it. But yep. I mean, how many people would see something and not stop or not think and just <laughs> yeah. be like, none of my business, keep going. Yeah. Well, like it reminds me of the Mary Vincent story. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Except her story was so much more gruesome. Of uh, she was raped, had her limbs cut off by this terrible guy, and she manages to crawl up a ravine and she's running around naked on this highway with no arms screaming for help and people were driving by her because they thought yeah. she was something out of a horror movie i mean if right. i saw a naked woman on the side of the road i i would hope i would stop yeah. you know but i mean you really don't know and they didn't know and then also you know i, I do want to shout out to that deputy who was like we have this missing kid and, and missing mother we need Something's to do our, our due here. diligence yeah. right and they saw something. I mean, and, and when you watch Unsolved Mysteries and you see Deborah Hoyt, and I, I can't remember now if they interview her husband, but I mean, you can tell they're not the kind of people that's going to make something up. Right. <laughs> like, anyway, well, it's just, especially it's always when back in the me. day, you're not going to find a phone booth in the middle of, you know, buttfuck California. Yeah. And call in a prank call at 3 a.m. No. Like, I hope not. (laughs) You know, I mean, if you if you're that committed, then good on you. Sure. Um, I hope you enjoy it. But you know, wow. Yes, I distinctly remember um this episode of Unsolved. Mm -hmm. I love it. It was one. Yeah, me too. I love Unsolved Mysteries, and it just it's just always stuck with me. I you know, I just so many mothers I know would have done the same thing. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. But, um, and yeah, y'all go check out that cemetery because there are some cool people buried there. Like, I really want to go and explore. I want to say one of the babies, um, from my LA one is buried. No, maybe. I think, I think they're buried in like something called like Forest Lawn or Forest Park or something like that. This one's Forest Lawn, but it's in Cypress, California. Yeah. But but yes, then one of the babies from um, the movie set from Twilight Zone is buried there. They might be. Yeah. Like there were so many people. And so I was like, at first I kept coming up on major league baseball players and i'm like listen <laughs> no offense to major league baseball players but if you walked up to me and hit me in the head with a baseball bat i would still be like who are you so yeah. i was I like great let me watch when you walk away <laughs> yeah that's true um but yeah so when i got down and realized like glenn quinn was buried there i'm like i loved him on angel i was so sad when he died and yes. um Eddie Cochran, like, <laughs> oh, we yeah, to cover him at some point because his death's really sad. He he died very, very young. We'll have to um, do musicians again. I know we've done musicians yeah. at one point, but we'll have to do them again. Yeah, we, we did. should. Did we? I think we just did blues, right? Yeah, I think yeah. we just did bluesmen. Yeah. Well, hey, let's and go back and let's do up. some. You're seeing how the sausage is made. Um, let's go back <laughs> and like pick different genres. Like this is how rollers. we ended up with shipwrecks. Is me going, ooh, boats. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But yeah, so next week, uh, we are going to talk about artists. And as I told the ladies when I had an idea for this, which the idea came from Antiques Roadshow. So Always. thank you, PBS. Yes. Um, they, uh, 
I think artists can really be anything because whether it's maybe a furniture designer, Mm -hmm. I know there's been a lot of those on antique roadshow that you're just like, Oh my God, this person created this work of art Mm -hmm. and you're supposed to sit in it WTF or like jewelry makers or painters or sculptors or Mm -hmm. anyone printmakers um anyone who is considered an artist is a glass work yeah yeah Yeah. it's like we talked about Tiffany a little bit and you know he had beautiful stained glass pieces yeah so yeah um that is it for this week awesome job ladies Yes. yes good job and Lori where can they find us we are on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Cemetery Row Pod, or you can send us an email to cemeteryrowpod at gmail.com. And be sure to leave us a review and send us an email and tell your friends about us and all that jazz. Yes. Only leave us a review if you like us. Yes. No <laughs> negative reviews here. Be nice, please. <laughs> all right, ladies. Bye. Right. Bye. Bye.